Well, this morning, we continue our, our gospel culture sermon series looking at, at, at 12 biblical traits that shape God's church. Now, if you were with us last week, I explained that there are three reasons why we are, are picking out these particular traits, why we are going through this series. And I'll just repeat them here just so you kind of know why we're doing this. The first reason is one that should be most obvious, but isn't always, so it bears repeating. The reason we are looking at these traits and seeking to be more and more faithful to these traits is first and foremost because they are biblical. They didn't just come out of thin air, right? They're given to us by God in his word. They're not the only traits of a biblical church, but these particular traits are essential to what God calls God's, his people to be. That reason alone should be enough for us, but I'll give you two more. To contextualize this sermon series for today, the, the second reason we are looking at these particular traits in this uh, season of our church is because they're, they're historical. And what I mean by that is that, that they're not new, they're not cool, they're not, they're not trendy characteristics that I pulled out of some uh, new church strategy book to present to you. These are the same traits that have been required of God's people from the very beginning and then even historically, as historians have, have studied this, they're the same traits that have been, have been present when God brings spiritual renewal to his people. And let's be honest, we, we need a little bit more spiritual renewal as a church body. Pretty regularly, right? Now, don't get me wrong when I talk about the second reason. These traits are not some kind of guarantee of spiritual renewal. They're not plug and play because it's God's job and God's job alone to bring that renewal. But the absence of any of these characteristics appears to be, from the testimony of history, uh, an obstacle to spiritual renewal. Why? Because God has determined these traits to be definitional of his church. And so as we continue to navigate a, a, a new senior pastor and all the changes we kind of go through as a congregation here, I want to look at the shared history of God's people to establish who and how we should be as a church. It's two reasons. Third reason. We are looking at these traits. It's not just because they're biblical, not just because they're historical, but because in this present cultural moment, not just within our church, but, but within society, I, I have become convinced that these biblical traits are, are essential for any church that wants to be faithful and fruitful in the uh, increasingly anti-God and, and secular society that God has placed us in. In order for us to be a, a, a witness, these 12 traits, are, I believe, are necessary ingredients for our church family in this particular cultural moment. So three reasons. It's biblical, it's historical, and it's essential for witness today. And last week, we started with the, the first biblical trait, the supremacy of the scriptures. I, I made the argument that the Bible, that the, the, this, this Bible must be at the foundation of a faithful and fruitful church because the Bible is our ultimate authority. Everything is measured against, weighed by, and filtered through scripture. This is why we preach the Bible and why we want to filter every decision we make as a congregation through Scripture. The most important question we answer whenever we as a congregation are considering something that we, we want to do or evaluating something that we're already doing is not, is it practical or, or is it helpful or, or is it what people want? No, the most important question is always, is it biblical? The Bible is our foundation for everything we do. But last week, I also promised you this, this second trait that flows out of that, but it is also a, a really important one here at the beginning of our series. And the second biblical trait that we're looking at this morning is the centrality of the gospel. I want to make the argument that in order to be a faithful and fruitful church, we not only have to have the Bible at our foundation, we also have, the, have to have the gospel as our core. These traits, the, the, the supremacy of Scripture and the centrality of the gospel, they are essential for understanding the rest of the, this, this series. That's so why we put them here at the beginning. That's why this series is in the order that it is in, because together these two traits 
are the fundamental source from which every other trait flows. All right? The rest of this series could be given in any order, but the reason we did these as one and two is because they give us the foundation and the core of what it means to be a biblical church, and then everything builds on that and around that. It's only when the gospel is our foundation and the, or the Bible is our foundation and the gospel is our core that the rest of the traits even follow and make sense. So that's why this morning, building on what we studied last week, I want to persuade you that if we really and truly want to be a biblical church, we must have the gospel at our core. I say that I want to persuade you of that because I, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page as to what that means. The gospel being central. Uh, the, the way that we have summarized it in the past as a church is through this, this particular tagline, I'll throw it up on the screen, that the gospel isn't just the starting line, it's the whole race. What we mean when we kind of give that tagline, that summary, is that the gospel is not just for the beginning of Christian life, it is the beginning, the middle, and the end, right? It, it is what, what saves us, what, what keeps us, and what will carry us all the way home into eternity. It's not just good news for us to become a Christian, it's good news for us to stay Christian. It is not just for, for unbelievers, but for all believers. And in order to explain and persuade you of the necessity of gospel centrality, we're going to be in this particular text that we've read together this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. And I want us to walk through the text similar to the way we did last time, considering four different questions. The first question is why gospel-centered? Right, I've already kind of hinted at that, shown my cards a little bit, but I want to dive into a little bit more based off of what this text teaches us. Why does the gospel have to be at the center of any biblical church? Once we answer that, well, then the next question might come a little bit more naturally. Well, then, if it has to be at the center, what is it? Right? What is the gospel, and why do we need it so badly? But I don't want to stop there, because answering those two questions are only half of what we need to do this morning. Because having more information is not the goal. Knowing why the gospel must be central, what it is, and why we need it, takes us only part of the way there. And that's why we have these next two questions. Knowing what we know, convinced of the content and the necessity of the gospel, it's its rightful place at the center of our church. I want us to consider the implications of what that means. What is a gospel-centered life, and what is a gospel-centered church? So that's our roadmap this morning through this text in 1 Corinthians 15. Why does the gospel need to be at the center? What even is this gospel, and why do we need it so much? And if that's all true, what do a gospel-centered life and a gospel-centered church even look like? All right, let's start with the why. Why gospel-centered? Why is Eric spending time on something that's apparently so basic to Christianity that it's right at the beginning? Why am I arguing for this? Well, to answer that, I want to begin by looking at a very specific phrase that shows up in our text. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, What I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. The gospel, Paul explains, it is not just something that is one of many truths we hold as Christians. It's not just something that is, is important to every church. Paul writes that it is of first importance. Well, what does that mean? By definition, there can only be one thing that's first. Right? There may be other things on the list. There, there may be other people on the uh, winner's stand. There might be other people on the leaderboard. But by definition, there's only one first place. And the text says that for believers, for, for God's church, the gospel occupies that primary place, that, that, that place of first importance. It, it, it basically, if this goes, everything else goes with it. If the gospel is left behind just at the beginning of the Christian life, 
if it is only first in time but not in importance, if we believe it to be a message that's just for, for new Christians and, and non-believers only, it will not be long before we trade out the grace and mercy of God for legalistic obedience. Maybe not trying to earn our place with God, but certainly as a way to try and keep our place with God. We risk shifting the core of our faith from the good news of Jesus Christ to the implications of the good news of Jesus Christ. To summarize a New Testament theologian named uh, D.A. Carson, uh, when the gospel is not central, there's this domino effect. He walks through history, but what he basically says is, is when the gospel believed becomes the gospel assumed, eventually it will become the gospel denied, leaving us to focus on what the gospel produces instead of the gospel that produced it. What I mean by that is that you start believing the gospel, and then you start moving on to what you might consider more important things, and you start assuming the gospel. It's there. It's kind of where we started, but we don't really need to focus on that. That part ain't broke. And then eventually when it's assumed, it starts to get a little bit more muddy because of all the things that are produced by the gospel, all the good things that are produced by the gospel, the obedience, the holiness, all these things. But when the gospel is assumed and eventually the gospel is denied, those things become the center. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Focusing as primary something like a a political identity or, or an economic stance or some kind of social issue instead of the gospel that affects all of those things. Why gospel-centered? Because the Bible tells us that the gospel is of first importance, and there can only be one. That's the first thing I want you to see here. Why? Because the Bible says it is. But then you might be wondering, okay, why is the Bible making such a big deal of this? So here's the the, the second reason why I think the gospel needs to be centered in, in our lives and in our churches, and why the gospel is of first importance What is it about the gospel that puts it in the primary spot? Paul answers that, not just in this text, but in another text that kind of sums it up. And I'm just going to jump right there really quick, and we'll go back to 1 Corinthians. Romans 1.16, Paul writes this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That basic understanding of the gospel as the power of God for salvation weaves in and out of every single one of Paul's letters. It's all over the New Testament. It is all over the Bible. We don't just keep the gospel central because the Bible tells us to. We also keep the gospel central because it is the only message that is embedded with the power of God to save people lost in their sins. The only hope that we have. The only way our situation can be reversed. The the only rescue that is available to us is the good news of Jesus. It is the power of God for salvation. Why are we gospel-centered? Because the Bible tells us to keep the gospel central, but also because the gospel is the only way anyone can be saved. But there's one more reason I want to give you why the gospel is central. And it builds off that second reason, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And I want to bring us back to 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes this. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. He begins this section here by by almost reiterating, reminding them, but also even saying it himself, who they are to each other. We're family, brothers and sisters. This is is a, a family conversation. And in this family conversation, he wants to remind them of something that they've apparently forgotten. Right? Whether they know they have forgotten it or not, he he wants to bring to the surface not just the fact that they forgot, but that they need to remember. So what is it that they need to remember? It's the gospel. But not just any gospel, Paul says. 
It's the gospel that I preached to you. Right? There are all kinds of, of gospels out there. Right? Messages of good news that try to convince you that they, they offer what they consider to be the best or even the only solution to what they also consider to be the main problem that you have. Look at any advertisement. Look at anyone trying to sell you something. It's always talking about, you have this problem and only I can fix it. That is a message of good news. What we need to remember is not just any gospel, but the gospel that was preached. Well, which gospel? Paul's about to give the content. But before he does that, he also wants to remind them of what the gospel did in their lives. The effect that the gospel had in their lives. So looking back at verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Right? It's not just the gospel that Paul preached, as if he was just preaching to the air. It's the gospel that they themselves have received. The gospel that saved them. The the, the gospel that met the depths of their their sins with the even deeper love of Jesus. The gospel that made them Christians in the first place. But it's not only that. Paul continues, it's the gospel on which you have taken your stand. It's not just the gospel that made them Christian. It's the gospel that keeps them Christian. The gospel that is firm footing for the believer that is saved by grace. Right? That's why the gospel is not just the starting line, but it's the whole race. It, 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 I know it's hard to believe that I'm a runner, um, but to try to explain this and connect the gospel to this illustration, I asked my runner friends, and what I want you to understand is that the gospel is not just like the burst of energy you get at the beginning of, of the race at the starting line. Right? It's not the energy that, that, keeps you, uh, uh, that just starts the whole thing. It's the energy that keeps you running past every single mile marker. Right? It's, it's the, the way station that refuels you at mile marker 10. It's the sound of those who cheer you on as you run. It's the extra push when you feel like you can't take another step. It is the gospel on which you have taken your stand. It is the gospel not just for the beginning, but for the whole of your life. The gospel that not only saves you, but holds on to you. But it's also the gospel that brings you all the way home. Look at verse 2. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. It's not only the gospel that saves you and keeps you, it is also the gospel that brings you all the way home to eternity. That the gospel that gets you through the finish line. It is good news that doesn't just live in the past, but sustains in the present and holds you on until the future. The gospel is central, not just because the Bible says so, or because it is powerful to save, but also because it holds everything together. It applies in every situation. The gospel speaks to everything we experience, everything we see, everything we say, everything we do. The gospel is central because the gospel is able to hit every single aspect of our lives individually and as a church and hold it all together. But, Paul warns, we have to hold on to it. We must believe, yes, but we must also apply the gospel because as Paul explains, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now, the word that Paul uses here that we translate as in vain is not just some kind of a subtle dig at them, right? He's not just trying to get them to agree with him. When I was trying to think through a, a, a way that this might uh, kind of communicate what, what I don't think Paul is doing here, is, is it's not like the way that uh, college guys try to get other college guys to do something dumb, right? Like, like chug a gallon of milk or eat a spoonful of cinnamon, unless you're scared. That's not what Paul is doing here. I'm not recommending doing either of those things, just as an aside. And not that I have ever done them in my life. Paul is not trying to provoke them into agreement. What Paul is saying here is that the Christian life is is incoherent without the gospel. 
That's the word that's, that's kind of being translated as in vain. It, it, does, it doesn't make sense. It is, it is disjointed. It, it is disconnected without the gospel to hold it all together. It, it doesn't make sense without the gospel. Um, sleep, Eric, is my worst enemy. I'll explain to you what I mean. It, 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 sleep, Eric, has taken different uh, paths in my marriage, the current path that he is on is that he shows up in my, dream, in my wife's dreams, and I have to apologize for things in real life about things that I did in the dream world. Um, she has been very kind to me and not believed that I have done those things. But the way that that started in my marriage is that actually uh, Sleep Eric was present in the real world. And what I mean by that is that I would uh, uh, sleep talk and sleepwalk. And the things that I would do and say were not the things that I would do and say in normal real life. Right? So like one time I got up and changed the thermostat and my wife wondering what in the world I was doing and I did not respond to her. I looked straight, her blank stare on my face but looked her straight in the eyes and just went. <laughs> not something I would do in normal life. Another time she woke up to me looking at her giggling, which is creepy enough. <laughs> and when she asked what I was doing and I said, you have a napkin on your head. She had gone to bed with a towel and drying her hair after a shower and I apparently in my sleep induced whatever was being super weird. When I'm talking about believing the gospel and living your life with the gospel, it's that the way you live your life makes coherent what you say you believe. If you live in a particular way, it will tell me what you believe despite what you say. All right? So when Paul is talking about unless you have believed in vain, he is talking about the way they're living the lives and he's saying, okay, look back at what you say you believe. Does that match up with what you say you believe? Gospel life and gospel belief need to be together. The church used to say it, it's orthodoxy, what you believe, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice. The Christian life is incoherent if the gospel is not at the center. There is a real warning here of not just like mission drift, but, but life drift, of, of faith drift, of dangerous territory for any Christian or church that does not have the gospel at the center because then that church starts to become incoherent. It doesn't make sense. Why gospel-centered? Because the Bible tells us that the gospel is central, because the gospel is the only thing that can save us, and because the gospel is what holds it all together and makes it coherent, makes it make sense. So with this why established, and I wanted to take a lot more time here before we go to the other ones because I wanted you to understand why we're doing this, and then I want to talk about what this actually is. What is the gospel and why do we need it? Right? It's not just enough for us to know that the gospel is at the center of uh, our lives and our church. That matters, but it, does, it matters just as much which gospel we're talking about. Because if we don't define it, we run the risk of assuming we're all talking about the same thing. And Paul felt that too, which is why in verses 3 through 5 he gets real specific and he explains the gospel. It's summarized in our text with four different lines, and I want to work through all, three, all four of them. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to the disciples. These four lines define the gospel in this particular text, and there's, there's more to different things in this, but this is the core of the message. And so I want to go through each of these lines in particular, right? So what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, where in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. Pause. These first two lines, they go together for a particular reason. Let me explain. 
The summary of the gospel begins with Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The, the first thing we have to understand in this gospel that we have to keep central is that it's about Jesus. Right? Not just who he is, but what he has done. He died. And why did he die? For our sins. Embedded in the definition of the gospel is right there the why of the gospel. Why we need it so badly. We need it for every act of rebellion we have committed against God the King. We need it for every act of disobedience we have done against the God who created us. We, we need it for every act of violence we have done in word and in deed that we have performed against God and his image bearers. All of these acts are what the Bible defines as sin. And they deserve punishment. They, re- they require payment. And the punishment and the payment of sin is death, the scriptures tell us. Uh, nothing else will meet the requirements of the perfect and just judge. There, there, there is no parole hearing. There is no commuting the sentence. There is no appeals process. The perfect God who rules and judges perfectly does not make any mistakes when sentencing. He does not over or under punish for sin. The good and right judgment for our sin is death, the scriptures tell us. And so the only way to be saved from that sin is for someone else to die in our place. Either we die or someone else dies. We need a substitute for someone else to to carry the punishment of our sin on himself. And this is precisely what the text tells us Jesus did. This is the fundamental truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. That his death counts for the sins that we committed. And that all of that was according to the scriptures. It, it, it was all part of the plan, right? This, this gospel is not just some new idea that, that, that Paul cooked up, right? This is not some new plan that was set in motion when Jesus was born. It's, it's not when, when God was like, oh, I, we need to figure out another plan B or a plan C because plan A didn't work. The text tells us that this was always plan A. And if you read all the way to the end of the book in Revelation 13, we read that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. This was always plan A, and there was no other plan B. Christ died for our sins. Every story in the scriptures has been pointing to the gospel. All right, last week, I quoted this, this uh, tagline from one of my favorite children's uh, Bibles, the Jesus Storybook Bible. The tagline of that book, the little subtitle, is every story whispers his name. Because every part of the Bible is pointing to Jesus, pointing to this message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins. This is why we started with the authority of the Bible. Because if I didn't start there, then I couldn't say all the things that I'm saying right now. All of this is founded in what the Bible tells us about reality and about about God and about relationship with him and how he made us. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But, But Paul continues. He was buried. Why does Paul fixate on this? Why is he saying this? The reason, I think, because of the context and all the things that he's arguing in 1 Corinthians, the reason I think Paul includes this little phrase in here is to verify the first line. He wants to make sure that we understand that Christ actually died. Right? That this wasn't some spiritual death. This wasn't something like he fainted. It wasn't something like he kind of like really got really tired and then just kind of woke up after a good night's sleep. He really died and he was really buried. Then why does he talk about this? Why does his death matter so much, not just for our sins, but because of the next line? He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to all these different people. Paul is combining these two lines for his gospel purposes again. Not only did Christ die for our sins, Christ was also raised, resurrected, 
brought back to life by God on the third day according to the scriptures. The plan did not just include the death of Jesus, it also included the resurrection of Jesus. Not just payment for sin, but hope and power for new life. The good news is not just that Jesus fixed what was broken, but that he has actually brought us back into relationship with the God who made us. His resurrection completes his work of salvation. He, 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 Paul is so fixed on this, I mean, and he talks about it for the rest of the chapter. If you're interested, I would highly recommend looking at the rest of the chapter this, this week or even this afternoon. Because he is, is, it's so crucial that we remember and understand and believe not just the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus as part of this same message. And then he verifies. Same thing that happens at the second line. He appeared to all of these people. This is not some uh, uh, spiritual resurrection where Jesus floats on by like, uh, like the ghost of, of Passover past. He actually came back to life. Physically, bodily, he, he, he walked, he talked, he touched, he ate with his disciples. And Paul continues. He appeared. And he just lists, I mean, it's just a whole lit, more than 500 brothers and sisters, most of whom were still living, some have fallen asleep. Look, this is verifiable. He not only appeared, he appeared to a lot of people. You can talk to them. But then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And here's where Paul starts making a shift. Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul uh, finishes up his summary of the gospel, but then he gets to, to him and to, to, to Jesus' appearance to him. Why? Because of what he's talking about at the beginning of the text. Because he wants to communicate to them that the gospel is not just any old gospel, but the gospel that he preached. He's, he's, he's not just trying to establish his credentials. He's, he's uh, like Bitcoin trying to trace the blockchain of the gospel back to its origins. He's trying to show them this is how this all got passed down. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was brought back to life according to the scriptures. He appeared to person after person after person. This is not something I've made up. This is not something that I've picked up on my travels, some new philosophy that I'm sharing with you. The gospel that Paul preaches is the gospel that he received from Jesus himself. But just in case you weren't sure about that, look at all the other people that received that same gospel. What is the gospel? The Bible summarizes it. Jesus died for our sins. This was always plan A. God has been preparing the way for this. And we need this gospel because we are lost in our sins. We are without hope, unable to free ourselves from our slavery to sin. It's so bad that the Bible actually describes us as dead in our sins. And so instead of leaving us dead in our sins, Jesus died for our sins and was buried. This wasn't some magic trick, some sleight of hand. The creator of all life took on flesh and experienced death to save us. He was buried, but he didn't stay buried. And getting rid of our sin was only part of the plan. The creator of all life, dead and buried in a tomb, came back to life as the start of the new life that he promises for all who believe in him. He was, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And to be clear, this resurrected Jesus was actually physically, bodily resurrected. So to prove that, and to bring others into this new resurrection life, this Jesus appeared to hundreds of people who can verify that truth. This is the gospel. And this is why we need it so badly. And this is what must be at the center of our lives and the center of our church. John Calvin puts it like this, a little bit uh, more poetic than I have. He says this, without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty, all, all wisdom folly before God. Strength is weakness, and all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. 
gospel. By the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and slaves free. It is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. Why gospel-centered? Because with the gospel, there is no hope. This is why here in this church, the Bible is our foundation and the gospel is our core because we really believe that this is the only way for anyone to be saved, for anyone to be who God has made them to be. And so naturally you might ask, okay, Eric, convinced? What does that mean for my life and for this church? Glad you asked. That's why I put these last two questions here. These are going to be a little bit quicker. I know I'm pressed for time, but here we go. That doesn't mean I'm going to speed up my my speaking. I know that I speak very quickly already. What does it mean for us to live lives centered on the gospel? How does the gospel not change not just our future hope, but our present reality? I, I want to start here with talking about how it changes our particular lives because the church is made up of people and everyone plays a part in making that church centered on the gospel. The next two verses in our text give us a clue as to what that looked like for Paul and what I think it can look like for us. Look at verses 9 and 10. I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you see the gospel logic that explains Paul's testimony? He, he lists all these witnesses of the resurrection. He names himself as a witness, even if he considers himself a, a last or abnormally born. But, but why does he say that at the end? The text explains it's because he considers himself the least likely candidate for preaching the gospel because he was the one that was persecuting the church of God, right? He was not just an enemy of God because of his sin in general, but an active enemy persecuting God's church. And yet God showed him grace. It is by the the grace of God and the grace of God alone that Paul writes that he is called not only to believe, but to proclaim this gospel. And here is his gospel logic. His grace to me was not without effect. See, the gospel... It's not just something that we believe, it's something that has effect. Excuse me. Grace is not just something that is given, it is something that transforms. It's something that that changes everything. Grace is given, but grace is also effective. I worked harder, Paul writes, not to brag, but to explain that grace still requires work. It costs something. It makes us do something. But, and Paul, just to keep things clear, even then it was not him, but God's grace at work with him, in him, through him. So here's the point. A gospel-centered life is a life where the effects of the gospel touch everything about that life. It is a life of hard work that is dependent on grace. A life that that believes deeply that apart from God, we can do nothing and we deserve nothing. But by the grace of God, we have received everything. And in that that grace is what, what motivates us to obey, to serve, to love. We work hard, not to earn or keep our place, but because grace is our place. Because of the grace of the gospel... Everything about us is changed, not just uh, uh, how we work, but how we see ourselves, how we, how, we, how we see others and treat others. I've said it before here, uh, a gospel-centered life is, is, is marked by, by, by confident humility. It's confident not in ourselves, but in God and who he says we are. 
right? We, we are, we're humble enough to see ourselves as God sees us and see others as God sees them, defined by God, not, not by circumstances, not by our opinions, because it's only his definition of identity that matters. But, but I've said this before. It changes everything about our relationships because why? You already know the worst thing about me. You already know the worst thing about everybody that surrounds you right now. That, that you are bad enough that Jesus had to die for you. At the same time, you already know the best thing about you. The best thing about the person sitting to you, next to you. That God was willing to go through with it. And he did go through with it. That you are loved enough for God to go through with that. To act, the creator of life to experience death. Do you know how, how radical that is? That's how much he loves you. You know the best thing and the worst thing about each other, which changes everything about the way we interact, right? At least it should. It's still hard, but if we go back to that, it will change everything about our relationships over and over again, reminding each other that this is true of both of us. But when I talk about this, it's just, okay, Eric, these are just things that I'm supposed to think. Okay, I believe that, but, but what does that look like for my day-to-day life? Well, if you've met with me, a lot of times when I meet with people and we're talking about different things in their life, I ask some variation of this question. What does the gospel say about that situation? Or what does the gospel say about that way of thinking? Or what does the gospel say about that particular thing that we're talking about? How does the gospel challenge the narrative that you are repeating in your head? How does the gospel encourage you? How does the gospel challenge you right now? That question, the reason I ask that question is not because it's just some pastoral trick that I learned somewhere. It's because that that question has changed everything about my life as a Christian. It is one of the ways that I've grown to live a gospel-centered life, still growing, but dependent on grace and trying to exercise this gospel-centered muscle. So I'll give you one of the ways that has helped me, one of the ways to answering those questions for yourself. So next time we meet, you're like, Eric, that's a weird question. I want you to grow in preaching the gospel to yourself and to others. And I adapted this from a book that I'll recommend later. It's called Gospel Fluency. I'll show you the cover in a bit. But this book has these four questions to help us get a little bit more specific about preaching the gospel to ourselves regularly. And here are the questions. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done and and what is he doing, right? Because Jesus' work didn't finish. Who am I because of the work of Jesus? And how should I live because of who I am? Right? We we start with the character of Jesus. Who is he? And not just in general, but, but, but even specifically thinking about the problem or the situation or the thing that we're talking about. Which aspect of his character stands out to you right now? But don't stop there. I want you to then go thinking about the work of Jesus, right? The finished work of Jesus on the cross, but then also the present work of Jesus by his spirit here and now. How does what he did and what he is now doing apply in this moment, right? That the the king humbled himself and died for me and now he reigns. The, 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 The savior paid for my sin and now lives to intercede or pray for me. Jesus was was tempted but never sinned also that he could live a holy life and be able to pay for my sin. And so Jesus understands when I struggle because he's been there. And he provides a way out of temptation. With the character of Jesus in one hand and the work of Jesus in the other, the next question starts to get personal. Right? How does who he is and what he's done and is doing define who I am? What does that make me? Loved, worth it, an adopted child of God, empowered by the Spirit to resist temptation. What is my identity because of the past and present work of Christ? And then based on that character and work of Christ, what determines how I should live, right? How does who I am change what I do, right? As a child, I don't have to earn my acceptance. Loved by God, I don't need to try to uh, convince other people to love me. 
Empowered by the Spirit, I don't just have to give in to whatever sin throws at me. He provides a way out of temptation and I can trust him. How does who he is, what he's done, and who I am now change what I do? Now, even as I say that, you're like, oh, Eric, that was like a really quick paragraph there. That sounds a lot more complicated than you're letting on. That's because it is, right? This is not easy work. I'm presenting this to you not because I'm like, oh, yeah, here's a, a spiritual pill, take it, and then you're good. Like, this is really hard work. We're still in process, and we res- resist this kind of gospel work. So to help in that work, one of the other ways that I've done is not just going through these questions, but reading books that help me do this, that point me to scriptures to figure this out. So you know that I'm a nerd, and I'm going to try and get book recommendations in as often as I can nowadays. But I'm going to recommend these four books to you. I recommend them to you. If you cannot buy them, I will buy them for you. They're this good, okay? Not because these people are perfect, but because they keep pointing back to Jesus, and that's what we need. So here's the first two recommendations. What is the gospel by Greg Gilbert? And the gospel, how the church portrays the beauty of Christ by Ray Ortland. These are for my non-readers in this congregation, not looking at anybody in the eyes. Because these are very tiny books. They're very quick to read. But they are incredibly helpful. Incredibly helpful. They, they, they explain not just the gospel, but how the gospel gives shape to our lives and even to our community. And so I actually read these books pretty regularly to keep flexing that gospel muscle. So because it's just so easy to forget. That's why Paul says, I want to remind you of what I preach to you. We just forget too often. The next two recommendations are these books, Gospel Fluency by, that I mentioned by Jeff Vanderstelt and A Gospel Primer, or Primer if you're from a different country, by Milton Vincent. Gospel Fluency makes the rubber hit the road, gives you these questions, gives you a bunch of different things about not just how to preach the gospel to yourself, but how to talk about it with each other. There's another thing in there that talks about fruit to root that's been, I mean, incredible to try to suss out, well, how does the gospel apply to this? Not just like, here's the message in general, but how does it apply to what I'm dealing with right now? And then a gospel primer is one of my favorite devotionals because what it does is it takes the gospel like a diamond and just keeps turning it and looking at all of the different angles. It's really, really helpful. Again, if you can't buy them, I will buy them for you. And I will tell Hannibal, like, this is my pastoral care shepherding work, at least part of it. Okay? Books aren't everything, though. I gave you these questions because... We aren't just reading them. I'm like, hey, figure it out on your own. These questions are meant to be in community and talking through it with each other. Right? So a a, a gospel-centered life is also uh, connected to what it means to be in a gospel-centered church. Right? Jesus, when he saves us, he doesn't leave us alone. Right? He, He lives in us by his spirit, but he also puts us together with other believers and makes us into a family. If you haven't been convinced of this already since we've been here, faith comes with a family. And so this last question is where I want us to end this morning. What is a gospel-centered church? What does it mean for all of us together to center our lives on the gospel? And in particular, what does it mean for us here at TVC and even across our extended Wheaton Bible Church familia? What does it look like for a church to keep the main thing the main thing? The gospel as a first importance. And Paul gives us the implication in the final verse, and I'm going to draw a principle out of that. Look at verse 11 of our text. He lays out the gospel. He describes the effects of grace in his life, and he writes this. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. In this one verse, Paul makes it clear. This is not about me and it's not about you. Right? This is about the gospel. No matter who preaches it, what saves is not the messenger, but the message by the power of the Spirit. The gospel preached and the gospel believed. It doesn't matter how well the preacher preaches or how many degrees the preacher has. What matters is if the gospel is at the center of it all. And so here's the implication. When the main thing stays in focus... We are not distracted by things like how well someone speaks or how impressive their resume is. Here's the principle I want to draw. 
a church remains gospel-centered, when it remains laser-focused on the gospel in absolutely everything, right? When the gospel is central, when the gospel is the main thing that gives life to and sustains the church, when everyone, is, everyone and everything is affected by the gospel, all those things that tend to uh, cause church fights, they struggle to gain a hearing when the gospel is central because they no longer are the main thing, right? They're no longer primary. They're no longer first. This doesn't make them important, but it makes them subordinate. It makes them secondary. It makes them not as important as our sinful hearts tend to make the things we disagree about. And that's because the gospel affects not just what we believe, but how we live. Ray Ortland, in that book that I recommended, explains it like this. He says, the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. Right gospel doctrine plus anti-gospel culture is a denial of the gospel. You see, you cannot have one without the other. It's not enough to believe the right things. They must affect how we live. We have to be coherent Christians. We need gospel doctrine. This comes from that same book. And gospel culture. We can't deny the gospel we say we believe by the way that we live. And at the same time, we cannot try to live out of the gospel without a true understanding of that gospel. The gospel assumed becomes the gospel forgotten. And something always has to be first. So this is why I want you to know that here at TVC, and even in our whole church family across all of our congregations, we are committed to both. We are committed to always placing the gospel as of first importance in our teaching and in our preaching. This is the gospel doctrine piece. It's why we get to the gospel in all of our sermons. It's why we look for gospel-centered curriculum for our children like the gospel project. It's why whenever we study the Bible, we ask, where is the gospel? Not to try to twist the text into saying something it's not, but to see how in that text the gospel might be predicted or presented, or even prescribed? How does the text point us forward to the gospel? How does it describe the gospel? Or how does it command us because of the gospel? But I also want you to know that as, your, as leaders and, and even as a staff team at TVC and across the whole family, what we want to also be committed to is not just preaching the gospel to you, but preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other. Right? We're, we are just as dependent on the gospel as you are. And this is why whenever we, we, we counsel, whenever we meet, whenever we talk, we want to also continue to ask and preach the gospel to you in those conversations. This is the gospel culture piece. We want to do all things with the gospel at the center. We need the gospel, and we want to model for you what it means to, to have the gospel centered in our lives. And you need the gospel, and you need to be part of what that looks like for you to have the gospel central in your life. A gospel-centered church believes, teaches, and lives out the gospel everywhere. A gospel-centered church makes gospel-centered Christians. But the opposite is also true. Gospel-centered Christians make up a gospel-centered church. So when I talk about uh, uh, having a gospel-centered life and then talking about a gospel-centered church, the, and these are our commitments, what I want to ask you is, what are yours this morning? H how are you going to live a gospel-centered life? But even when I ask an individual question, I don't want an individual answer because this is not something you do on your own. How will you help this church family be gospel-centered? How can this church family help you be gospel-centered? That only comes when you actually open up to each other and talk about these things and practice these things. At the end of his book, Ray Orland writes this. In all this world, there is no truth so solid as gospel doctrine. 
No community so humane as a gospel culture. And nothing so resisted and yet so redemptive as both together and nothing so, un, so worthy of our utmost devotion. It is the only thing that can maintain the center of a church without collapsing in on itself. It is the core of what we believe and the core of how we live. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And it is the way that God is making all things new in and through us. Which is why, as a church, we say... The gospel is not just the starting line, it's the whole race. That's why we as a church hold to gospel centrality. If you're convinced of that, the next question is, what will that mean for how you live and how we live together as a family? Let's pray that we might continue to hold the gospel central. Gracious God, this morning we pray grateful for what you have done for us and are doing in us because of Jesus. It is you who made us into family by the death and resurrection of Christ. It is you who saved us from our sins. You who gave us new hearts to resist sin, to embrace life in your kingdom. And so we pray that you would continue to empower us to keep the gospel central in our lives and in this church. And Lord, even in every church in this community, we pray, Lord, that all those who are are, uh, biblically faithful would keep the gospel central. Keep us from making anything but the gospel central. Jeremiah reminds us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and we are still in process, so please keep us from being deceived into believing that anything else but the good news of of grace can save us and can keep us and can bring us all the way home. King of kings, this morning we praise you. Because like we're about to sing, we were hopelessly wandering in darkness and you came running with overwhelming mercy and love. May you mark us with your extravagant grace. May your gospel be central in everything we do. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.